to Satan be able to use these stones and the knowledge of them? Of course. He had, he had, he had them way before Aaron did. So, so yeah, so it's, so, so it's no surprise, I think, in the, in the more esoteric, Illuminati, Freemasonry, alchemy, it's really about this idea of becoming a god. Another interesting thing, too, in Ezekiel chapter 28, is that when it's going through those, the, the, when it's describing the devil and his righteous, before his fall as a righteous angel, and says that he had the breastplate and all the precious stones, it says that he walked among the stones of fire. And so, and again, that's, that, that's being said by God as a compliment. Right, you were so high-ranking, you were among the stones of fire. And what I, what I believe those stones of fire are, I think there was also supernatural stones. This is Ryan Peterson, author of Judgment of the Nephilim and the Final Nephilim, and you are experiencing whether you're on a podcast or on video, Prometheus lands with my main man and my brother Justin Brown. All things continually lead back to serpents, dragons, fairies, Nephilim, and fallen angels. In the distance looms a mystical mountain. As Mike Heiser used to say, if it's in the Bible and it's weird, it's probably important. At its peak, a great fire burns, concealing the Prometheus lens. This, this development of this knowledge that's being talked about within the mystery schools. An ancient artifact said to reveal the hidden truth within a deliberately darkened world. There is a hidden history that's been deliberately obfuscated from the peoples of the world. Join us as we travel and explore the vast unknown. It's a hero's journey with dragons to slay, damsels to save, and innumerable treasures to hoard. Torches high. The Smithsonian, they'd caught wind of a giant skeleton. They would send their agents out to get it. But it takes courage to move forward, to move out of the shadows, out of the uh, unreality that we think of as reality. We are all on the hero's journey. Mankind has been in contact with and influenced by extraterrestrials. Leave the Sitchin mound of bull feathers out of it. You know, look at it from a different perspective. A different perspective. Different perspective. Different perspective. All right, what is happening? What is up? Hold out your glass because we're about to fill it up. Welcome to the Prometheus Lens Podcast, the place where the conversations are always enlightening. I'm your host, Justin. You may know me from my works with the Dig Bible podcast. This is my solo project where I just uh, dive into interesting subjects and just uh, nerd out with guests and authors and just uh, do the things I enjoy and talk about the things that I love to talk about. We use the allegory of the Prometheus lens basically just to reevaluate and take a second look at everything because more often than not, we find when we look into certain things that they're not quite like we've been told. So therefore we must be good stewards and look at these things ourselves. So uh, today I got a really great guest for you guys. Uh, one of my favorites met him, you know, about a year and a half ago, had him on the dig Bible podcast repeatedly. We always have great conversations and just a great mind, great thinker and knows the Bible like the back of his hand. So I want to introduce to the show today, uh, Ryan Peterson, Ryan, how you doing buddy? Justin, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's Friday. And what better thing to do to keep off the weekend than getting deep into the word of God. So thanks for having me on. Excited to be on on your new show. Excited yeah. to be on, man. Yeah, excited to have you. First of many. But yes, uh, I was talking to you pre-roll back when you used to do the Thursday night theology. 
you brought up a subject matter that was uh, really fascinating to me, and it was uh, basically uh, powerful stones. And you said, you know, in your thumbnail, you had said, uh, does God speak to his people through stones? And this is one of those these things I want to preface is that I'm not getting new agey with anybody here. Uh, we're just going to have a discussion and we're going to look at examples and we're going to see. And I think by the end of this show, you're going to see that this is something that not only was practiced in biblical times, but God even commands his people to do so. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm glad you put that disclaimer out there that this is not new age. This is definitely biblical. And we're definitely going to go through that. And this was something that was, you know, a lot of things, even when we think about the new age, a lot of new age practices are really imitations of things that God has ordained. Right. Mm -hmm. So we, so while it may seem, Oh, wow, where are they getting this from? It's outrageous. You know, the enemy's constantly mimicking God. Right. We were just talking in our last episode of the Big Bible podcast about the fact that ultimately the Antichrist himself is just an imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So so you might see some parallels, but it originated in the Bible. And particularly, um, I think just as a general principle, we see that there are stones have supernatural properties in the Bible. Right. They that jewels have a special meaning to God in earth and in heaven. So. Um, but when we talk about the stones that can speak to God, that's really the Urim and the Thummim. And the reason why I really did, made that a topic on Thursday Night Theology was because it's just something that we don't hear about a lot at all in any circle, whether in church, podcasts, you know, I'm like this, but, but yet it's something that was really important to God. And um, just to kick off the biblical precedent and, and justification and foundation, it's, it's Exodus 28, right? So when God is giving... Moses and Aaron, the instructions for the priestly garments, right? Aaron, of course, Moses' brother is the first high priest. He's instructing him on what he has to wear um, to enter into the tabernacle, into the most holy place where only the high priest can go. So we're talking about this is divine, righteous preparation. Mm -hmm. Just how they had to bathe themselves, just how they had to wear certain cloths and certain colors. Aaron, as the high priest, had to wear a breastplate. And this breastplate had jewels in it. And there were 12 jewels in there, and they were each for uh, a jewel for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and I think there's a lot of sim symbolism there, right? So as the high priest, he's a, he's a foreshadow, a type of Jesus, right? Our high priest carrying the names of his people on his heart, right? So there's a beautiful foreshadow there, but it goes even deeper than that because God says also in that breastplate is the Urim and the Thummim which in Hebrew means the lights and the perfection, right? Again, which again, I also believe is, a, is, a, is, a, is all alluding to Jesus, right? Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is perfection. And so that's where they're introduced. So at a minimum, we can know without a doubt that these jewels that Aaron wore, were, they, they were designed and planned and required directly from the mouth of Yahweh. So there's nothing to be scared of. When we talk about the Urim and Thummim, it, this is from God. And that's right out of Exodus 28. Where it gets even more interesting, though, is that we see later on in Scripture that the purpose of the Urim and Thummim was to literally speak to God, to communicate when an important decision needed to be made. 
they were used to consult God and to, and to divine, to learn his will, to make an important decision. And so I don't, um, I want to give a very specific example, because again, this is something that isn't discussed that often. So I'm yeah. just going to give uh, just a couple of examples. N Numbers chapter 27, Eliezer, who was a high priest, right? So we, in, uh, again, we're seeing an important decision in Numbers 27. We get to the middle of verses 15 to 21. It says, and thou shalt put some of thy honor upon him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. And he shall stand before Eliezer the priest, who shall ask counsel for him after the judgment of Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the children of Israel with him, even all the congregation. So again, we're seeing God saying that the Urim should be consulted, and it's the Urim before the Lord, that it's Urim to understand what God wants done. There's another example. Uh, um, David consults Urim and Thurim in 1 Samuel. He's deciding we should go to war. And it says, he says to Abiathar, the high priest, bring the ephod. That was another term for that breastplate. And he asked God, which from through using the Urim and Thurim, should we go to war? Will we succeed or not succeed? And the Lord said, uh, he will come down. And then said David, well, the men of of Caleb, deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul. And the Lord said, they will deliver thee up. So he, God was speaking and communicating through these stones. And so there's definitely biblical precedent that this was something that God had not only ordained, but that it was actually, they contained supernatural properties to understand the will of God. Yeah, and that was in the first Samuel 28, wasn't it? But, but there's several other ones. I mean, I'll just give you you guys a few. You can jot them down and look for yourself. But like a, one was uh, Ezra, chapter 2, verse 63. Nehemiah, chapter 7, verse 65. And Leviticus 8, 8. I mean, you see this over and over again. But I just want to ask your opinion on this because it's not really clear. But it says that, that it's to be worn under the ephod at his heart. Yeah. Sure. So when I was reading this, I was like, could this be like a talisman, like a necklace or, or, or a cord with a bag containing the, the stones or something? Great question. And that, you know, and I've actually researched through the centuries and there are different interpretations because really the interesting thing about the urn and thumim, by the time you kind of get to the book of Judges, they're, they're no longer in use. So the early, so there's different commentaries, whether it's Jerome, uh, Josephus, Philo, they all have kind of different opinions on some ancient scholars believe that the 12 stones themselves were the Roman and Thumim. Others believe that they were two stones, one black and one white, and that they were in a little pouch that hung on the breastplate or hung off the bottom or on, right on top of it over the 12 stones. So there's lots of, it's very mysterious as to exactly where they were positioned, but Somehow or the other, they were physically connected to the breastplate that the high priest wore, whether they were hanging off the side, whether they were actually in the, the, the metal receptacle itself, or they were the 12 stones. I've seen all three interpretations. I kind of lean to the 12 stones interpretation, but I'm not dogmatic about it at all because it's really not clear. And you can go to the best ancient sources and it, you'll find three different versions of what they think it actually was and where it was positioned. So like when they asked uh, 
And I hate to compare it to this, but I, I'm going to do this because I know there's some people out there. Like I said, this might be kind of a trigger for. Basically, it's kind of like a like a spirit board. Do you think like they ask questions and like the, the stones would light up or you know what I'm yeah, getting I at? Do. I, yeah, I do. Yeah. I, I do think so. And uh, yeah, and when you think about it, right, again, we know that you can access the spirit realm through God or through the enemy, through the fallen angelic and demonic realm. And this is a fact, whether it's a Ouija board, whether it's a seance, you know, there are many ways to access the spirit realm outside of God. And we know that's sinful and that's bad, but we have our own way, right? But, you know, every Christian, every born again Christian, we're told that we can access God through prayer. We can get on our knees and speak and God will hear us in heaven. That is our way. So even prayer itself is accessed in the spiritual realm. We just don't often think of it as a supernatural act, but it is supernatural. Yeah. Um, and so the stones, the room and through they were a righteous way of speaking to God. Whereas the stone, whereas, you know, whether we're talking about a seance or any other stones that are used to communicate with the spirit realm, they might be communicating with a fallen angel with a demon. So it can be used for both ways, for the for a good way and for the way of evil. And I like too, because we've talked about it, you know, on the Dig Bible podcast, how it talks about, you know, you're not to seek out mediums. You're not to do necromancy and sacrifice to the dead and, and all these things. So it's like if they wasn't doing that and if you couldn't do that, what is the purpose in commanding people not to do it? You know what I mean? Rules are made because somebody once did that. And it was exactly. possible. Exactly. There's, there's a real power there. When you look at King Saul, it was very interesting because, of course, you know, he starts sinning. First, he, he tries to take the role of the high priest. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He tried to perform a sacrifice, which was the first thing that really got him on God's bad side. Then, of course, later on, he consults a medium, a witch, right, trying to access the spirit realm. But the interesting thing about that, he was deciding whether he should go to war. And this is when God's spirit already left him. And God, God removed the spirits. I will find another. Of course, it was David who succeeded him. But the interesting thing is he tries to divine God's will about this war. And it says God would not answer him by Urim or Thummim. So, so, so Saul knew the right way to consult God. And when that didn't work, what did he do? He does what many sinful human beings do. I'll take matters into my own hands and go find a witch to figure out what to do. And so we see that it's almost like we're seeing both sides of the spectrum there because he he tried the Urim and Thummim, but because because he had uh, rebelled against God, God wouldn't answer him. And, and then, then God leaves and goes to David because you, it turns right around and he goes to Eleazar and gets the Urim and Thummim. And God exactly. answers him through the same practice. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. So we see in Saul the right way to do it and the wrong way, uh, the sinful way. And obviously, he you know he ends up dying the next day after that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and this is a side note. I wanted to hit you with this because I brought it up one time. It just kind of hit me out of nowhere. And I brought it up to Ben and Steve. And they were like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, you're probably right. We were doing uh, an episode on uh, Sheol, you know, in the, in the afterlife. Where do we go when we die? And we got to that and was discussing it. And as we were discussing it, I told the guys, I was like, I kind of see some divine counsel here. 
And they're like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, think about it. I said, when uh, that king in the Old Testament, and his name is leaving me right now, I feel so embarrassed. Um, he wants to go to war and he goes to this other king and asks for his aid. And he says he won't go to war unless he uh, consults the prophets of Yahweh. And he's like, well, I've done consulted all these other prophets. They all say that I'm going to be victorious. And he's like, well, no, I want to hear the from the Yahweh prophet. And he's like, no, this guy only speaks evil of me. No, I don't want to, you know, and he's like, well, I ain't going to go to war with you till you do. And he does. And he shows up and he like facetiously says, oh yes, you'll be powerful and you'll win and you'll be victorious. And he's like, see, he mocks me. Tell me the truth. And he's like, you will lose and you will die in battle. Yes. And he said, uh, and then he says, uh, the Lord took me, uh, in the midst of his holy ones and God ordained that you die by the sword. And one spirit said, uh, well, we'll do it this way. And then another spirit said, well, we'll do it this way. And they were basically debating back and forth in the council. And then ultimately this one spirit come forward and says, well, I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets to deceive him. So then he goes out and he ends up dying. So I told them, I said, I see that with this episode with Saul in this medium. I said, think about it. He's about to go to war. So he goes to this medium. God allows this, you know, spirit to, to come out and tell him, yeah, you're, you're going to die tomorrow. And, and it's like, you know, we don't get to see because it's not said, but I said, it's quite possible that there was a divine council meeting held how are we going to let Saul fall really good we'll, point we'll put That's the line spirit idea. to come yeah, out and tell yeah. him and discourage him yeah. interesting you know I had never thought of it but it's really the same situation right a yeah. wicked king this one was Ahab right and yeah was Ahab really wicked right and oh, that's that's really interesting. I never thought, you know, that really could have been. And and, and even when you even when you think about it too, because, um, you know, when because obviously we know that the witch at Endor, she was overwhelmed by the whole thing, right? And she said, didn't she say, "I see gods ascending out of the earth," plural, right? So. Who knows, you know, what was, you know, maybe the mirror that's, that, that's very interesting. I never thought about that. That's very, that could have been a very similar scenario. But how are we going to deal with this, this guy, right? Yeah. He's going to go down there or go up and interesting, very interesting. That's good stuff. Yeah, yeah it just kind of hit me and I threw that up, but I, I wanted to throw that at you and see what you thought. But uh, I wanted before we proceeded just to show people too that this wasn't the, uh, the exception to the rule, you know, the, yeah. the, the whole of uh, consulting stones, casting lots and things like that. Um, you know, Proverbs verse 1633, it says, you know, the lot is cast into into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And then you had, you know, the day of the atonement. They, God told them cast lots for the goats, which one would go to Azazel. Uh, Leviticus chapter 16 verse 5 it talks about uh, God himself commands them to use uh, the, the one I was referencing uh, about the lots of the goats but Joshua cast lots for inheritance dividing up property in Joshua uh, 18 through 19 uh, Achan 
in Joshua 7, Jonah in chapter 1, verse 4, Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14, 41. Yeah. I mean, I could go on and on, even in the New Testament, because it's, uh, where is it? Disciples, right? And yeah, that's Judas. Yes, in Luke chapter 1. And then Peter uh, in Acts chapter 1, and uh, even the soldiers cast lots, which I know that they're not the Christians, but they casted lots for the garments of Jesus in John chapter 19. So this is, like I said, this is not the exception to the rule. This is the rule pretty much of that time. Yeah. And, and interestingly also, too, it's it's even um, a judgment, right? Not having, because remember, it's also known as the ephod is another name for this breastplate. So in Hosea chapter three, which is a very short chapter, it's just a, it's just a basically a chapter of God's judgment upon Israel for a time. And it's, it's prophesying really the entire rejection of God, of, of Messiah to reconciliation in five verses. It's a very short chapter, but it says that for, there's going to be a season of, for Israel where they will not have the ephod. They're not going to hear from God because right? they're being punished. So the not having it is a sign of God's disapproval. So clearly God wants you when you are in line with God, when you're being obedient when you're walking with God, you have access to the breastplate and to, to, and to learn his will through these stones. Mm, yeah. And you just talking about the different interpretations. I stumbled across, and I hate that it didn't give his full name because it was in Logos, but it just, I guess it had his last name, but it was uh, Milgram. And his commentary had some speculations that I wanted to throw out there for the listeners. Uh, one of them, he said, they may have been... Uh, may, may have been a, uh, a bag of stones used for casting lots. One may indicate yes, one may indicate no. We talked about that. Uh, one was, they may have been uh, an item for each letter of the alphabet, like a bag of stones, kind of like uh, the Nordic runes. And it mm -hmm, says uh, sure. the name Urim in Hebrew is the, uh, begins with Aleph, the Hebrew letter. So while Thumim begins with Tav, which is the last letter. So the names of these stones may point to a bag of stones of the alphabet. So basically you would cast three stones and get a root word answer for your question. Yeah. And then another one he had was uh, they may have been two die like objects, each with some sides marked with an aleph for the urine and the other side a tav for the thumim. And if lots were cast, that both came up with the same mark. The result was yes or no. And if the two sides uh, didn't match, the, the results were inconclusive. So it's kind of like the magic eight ball, you know, please ask again right. later. Yeah, sure. yeah. <laughs> but I thought that was yeah, pretty cool about the whole alphabet. Yeah. I mean, that, that does, it looks very similar to the Nordic runes. Yeah. And, and I've seen depictions of it, too, as like a bag of stones. Um, so that's very, yeah, that's, that's, that's good. That's good. Jonathan Gill, um, who has you know, probably one of, one of the most famous uh, commentaries, he, I'll, I'll give you some of what he had on, it, on his interpretation. And he, he said, uh, in Gill's exposition on this passage, uh, he said, but but the opinion which at present I'm most inclined to come into is that the Urim and Thummim were no other than the 12 stones in the breastplate on which were engraven the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And these were called urim because they were clear, lucid, and transparent, and thumim because they were perfect and complete and had no blemish or defect in them. By these, the high priest consulted God for the people in matters of moment. And thus we read in Numbers, and talks about Joshua and Eliezer, who has counsel of, 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 for him after the judgment of Urim before the Lord. Uh, consult, consultation by Urim and Thurim was made by the priest only, but not without having on the ephod, and generally before the Ark of the Covenant, not for private persons in private affairs or for things trivial, but for public persons in matters of moment. So, I mean, you know, this is, I mean, his, his commentary on the Bible is probably one of the most consulted. I mean, this is a coming from a, as most fundamental doctrinal uh, Bible commentators you're going to find. He's just saying without, you know, unequivocally, that, yeah, they, this was used to consult the Lord. And again, I'm not dogmatic at all on what it was. It could have been stones in a pouch because it's really described in a funny way. It could have been two stones. It could have been 12 stones. It could have been a bag of stones. I, I'm open to either one, but... But definitely, I think they all agree that they these stones were supernatural. Yes. And you were literally speaking to Yahweh through these stones, and he was speaking back. And I mean, that's what the, the scripture says. Uh, well, with the, the Urim and Thummim and uh, talking about, you know, what they were, how they were used, and the different uh, ideas of what they were, because uh, I, I do want to bounce around a little bit to... Uh, like different uh, mythos and stories and things like that. Uh, is there one that kind of stands out to you in your mind, like a like a mythos story of of, uh, of a powerful stone or, or something like that? I think I'll, most of the things I was thinking of were more modern, but I know you mentioned earlier the philosopher's stone. Yeah, in the pre-roll as one. So you want maybe you want to share some thoughts on that because I think that's quite interesting. <laughs> yeah. And the the philosopher's stone and and it's I've actually just I've I've heard about it but I've never really like looked into it till like maybe like the past year, and I never realized that the uh, the Harry Potter series that one uh, how they changed it for America but in the original like when it was released in the United Kingdom was was uh, was Harry Potter and the philosopher's stone. Oh, it's what it was. And then when it comes to America, they changed it to the Sorcerer's Stone. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's what it was. But when I started looking into uh, Freemasonry, that kind of led me down a rabbit trail to alchemy. Yeah. And took me to the Philosopher's Stone. And, mm -hmm. and that's uh, a very broad rabbit hole. It's like you read about these guys talking about they in, inherited or found um, these uh, texts and scrolls from the mystery schools of Egypt. And they were turning dross into gold. And then that's where you get, you know, like uh, the story of Midas, everything he touched turned to gold. And then uh, yeah. rumble stiltskin, you know, spinning mm -hmm. straw into gold. And uh, but then when I got to look and it said that uh, the Hindus and the Indians, they looked at it totally different where people east of them just looked at it as or west of them looked at it as a, a physical thing. But they looked at it as a spiritual thing. So instead of taking a material of dross and turning it to gold and purifying it, because in alchemy, they 
basically take a raw material that's black when it starts and they do what they call, you know, the work and it purifies it. And then they introduce this new element and then they make this philosopher's stone and it's, and it's told to be, to be yellow. And then with it, you know, you can uh, generate gold or wealth and knowledge and eternal life and, you know, and all this exactly. stuff. But uh, the Indians believed that it was a, a, a spiritual alchemy that it was you are are black and yep. doing the work of life you know good deeds and uh spiritual enlightenment and growth and all these things th those were the work and you purified yourself through that and you became perfected in the philosopher's stone yeah, interesting. I, I, I always see it as more spiritual. Even on the Freemasonic side or the alchemy side, I always thought that it's really like they, it's a metaphor, right? They're using that idea of turning a stone into gold or dross to gold for enlightenment and immortality, that that's what mm -hmm. it's really about. Interesting thing too about Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone is that when they introduced the Philosopher's Stone in the story, it's in the school newspaper and it says that, oh, and they said it was Professor Nicholas Flamel, who of course is a famous alchemist and it says who's discovered the long lost philosopher's stone. And it, later on in the, in, in the news article in the book, it says, and he celebrated his 665th birthday last year. So yeah, I didn't pay office, no attention. He, what's that? I said, I didn't pay no attention to that. Yeah, yeah. So she made that. She dropped that little antichrist nugget in, right? Um, making that kind of connection between the philosopher's stone and immortality, and a lot of this. So, so yeah. So that's that to me is like kind of a, a hint that what it's really about is this idea again of returning to the age of the gods, immortality, man becoming immortal, man becoming a demigod, right? Mm -hmm. So that's how I've always kind of. Uh, seen it oh yeah uh, genesis 3 you know ye shall be as gods <laughs> exactly i mean you think about it too right the stones right satan had those stones right in ezekiel 28 interesting that those stones are described in both exodus chapter 28 and ezekiel 28 that just actually dawned on me before the show before the show started but i found mm -hmm. there's a lot of coincidences like that in the bible obviously we know the bible it didn't originally have chapters but god still designs it all but in Ezekiel 28, of course, we see this chapter where it's referring to Satan in the garden of God that has been in Eden, the garden of God. And every precious stone was that covering and then list nine stones in the Septuagint and list more. But those are the same stones that Aaron wore. So, again, yeah. we see this connection between the divine realm, supernatural power and these stones. And so, yeah, so would Satan be able to use these stones and the knowledge of them? Of course. He had, he had, he had them way before Aaron did. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, so it's, so, so it's no surprise. I think in the, in the more esoteric uh, Illuminati Freemasonry alchemy, it's really about this idea of becoming a God. So, yeah. um, and then, another interesting thing too, in, um, in Ezekiel chapter 28 is that when it's going through those, the, the, when it's describing the devil and his righteous before his fall as a righteous angel and says that he had the breastplate and all the precious stones. It says that he walked among the stones of fire. 
And so, and again, that's that that's being said by God as a compliment, right? You were so high ranking, you were among the stones of fire. And what I what I believe those stones of fire are, I think those are also supernatural stones. I think those are the coals that are on the altar of God. And I think that in Isaiah chapter six, when Isaiah goes before God's throne, I believe he's seeing Jesus on his throne in heaven, and they take coals and put it on his mouth because he says, "Look, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, right?" Yeah. And those and they take a coal, a hot stone off the altar, and it cleanses him, essentially. God is basically allowing him to just, I, I think that's, that was necessary for him to be able to stand before God, that there had to be some cleansing, just like the priest in the temple had to go dip themselves in the mikvah. There's always a cleansing that has to take place. Mm-hmm. And But I think those are actually the stones of fire that are being referenced in Ezekiel 28, and that is saying that, the devil, Satan, Lucifer was so high ranking that he was able to stand at that altar right among those stones and walk right basically right before the throne of God. That that's how high ranking he was before his fall. Yeah, see, and I've even theorized on other podcasts that the uh you know, in Genesis the Nakash, you know, uh the divine one, the the shining one, uh his coverings, you know, described in Ezekiel twenty eight. You know, there was nine stones listed, and then it talks, you know, and that's many colors. It's going to be bright. It's going to be shining, all the gold inlays. I was like, that would fit the description of the Nakash. He would definitely be shining. And then even when you go on down in Ezekiel 28, it says, you profaned your sanctuaries. So he's got a priestly garment on. It mentions specifically sanctuaries. He walked yeah. amongst the stones of fire. And then when he accuses uh, Joshua, it says that he's at the right hand of the father. That's where Jesus stands ultimately. Yeah. And so I said, I told people that I think when the, the, the garments were made or given to Adam and Eve, it could have very well been the stripping of the, the priestly ephod off of Satan, the Nakash, and the priesthood given to mankind to Adam and Eve. And that, you know, was the, the garments from the garden of God. And that alone would make Satan hate you. You got him demoted and you are now wearing the, the item of his shame. And then for added insult to injury, you only had nine stones. Now we got 12. We got an upgrade. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, 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 that's good stuff. All true. Right. And, and again, it's like when you think about these things from the fallen angelic perspective, it's like, wait a second. It's like these guys, they, they, they're going to replace us. God's taking everything from us and giving it to them. And so that's so the war was on. Right. And um, that's really interesting. That's really, really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, another thing, too, that comes to mind when you think about that, and then, of course, the whole history in the apocryphal text about those garments, right? That Nimrod got his hands on them, but they were kind of passed around all over the place. Esau got them, um, and Jacob, that's how yeah, Jacob yeah. got them. Yeah, exactly. Joseph and his um, coat of many colors. Yeah, yeah. Um, another thing, too, that came to mind when you think of an ancient story um, was the Emerald Tablets. Yes. Right? Which also kind of connected to alchemy, connected to the pre-flood world. Like some people think that Emerald Tablets came through on the flood and they contained all the secrets of antiquity of the days of Noah. So, and again, they're on they're on 
basically essentially written writings on jewels, right? They were emeralds and they had writings on them. So it's another idea, another ancient store account with stones that have these supernatural properties and secrets. Mm -hmm. Which I've been reading because uh, I've been doing some research on the Nephilim, but I've been looking through different cultures, mythos, and trying to piece together some stuff. And I got these books and they're fully illustrated. They're really awesome. But I got one. I mean, they're pretty thick, too. But it's uh, I got one on Egyptian culture and it's on their gods, their heroes, their mythos. And then I got the same book by the same guy. Uh, on Greek mythos, the Olympians and Hercules and all their demigods, and then another one on Norse mythology. And I was already kind of familiar with with the Greek and a little bit of the Egyptian, but Norse, I like. I know Odin was the the All Father and Thor was a, yep. his son. Mm -hmm. I knew the basics, but I'm almost finished with that book now. But there's been all kinds of cool little correlations that i've been finding you know through a biblical lens in that thing but they also have uh mythos in there and i like how the author uh was telling it said that there's lots of mythos that doesn't directly involve the gods but it's uh the ancient culture's way of explaining natural phenomena in their world and kind of relating it through story but I wanted to share this story with you. I just read it today and it was so funny because it was like 30 minutes before we came on and it was about stones. And I was like, okay, thank you, God. I'll add that, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, it's called, uh, the story is called the enchanted grindstones. And it says that Frodi, the son of Freyr, you know, who was the son of the sea God of the Pantheon, ruled for a time as king of Denmark. He once received enchanted grindstones from Grati, which were so massive, none of his servants or warriors could operate them. These grindstones were enchanted to provide anything the owner desired uh, from nothing but the labor in turning the, the grindstones themselves. So Frodi, eager to put them to work, bought two uh, sisters that were giants and made them their their slaves and their names were Mena and Grena. So I was like, well, okay, so we got some stones here and we got some giants. So this is yeah, getting interesting. Yeah. Yeah, very. So it says he told them to grind out gold, peace, and prosperity. And the sisters went to work singing of these things as they worked, as it required them to sing while working for the magic to work. So soon the king's land was full of gold and prosperity and uh, so much so that the kingdom was full and everyone was happy and fat and merry. But then it says the sisters grew tired and asked for rest, but driven by greed, he refused and he worked them day and night continually. And the sisters became disgruntled and devised a plan. While the king slept, they turned the stones and sang of enemy ships, invasion, and death. The next morning, hundreds of Viking ships arrived. They killed the king and ravaged the land, and they took the grinding stones and the sisters captive. And on the boat, the Viking king commanded that they grind and make salt to sail at the next port. 
So the sisters, fearing that they would be just as greedy as their last master, began to grind and sing of salt without ceasing, even when he told them to stop. The ship became so heavy that it sank into the ocean, and all the salt dissolved in the sea, and that is how the oceans became salty. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. So yeah, we, we got some uh according to this, we got some giant sisters to blame for the nasty water when we go to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> That's why. Yeah. Hey, yeah. you know, there's a connection, man. You know, I, I don't know if you've seen any of these videos of uh this guy, this young guy, he's like on a, a big, I think it's a fishing boat, like a serious, like a commercial fishing boat. Mm. He's been posting videos because he, he thinks he's hearing sirens at the, at sea at night. Like, like, you know, as in like hybrid sirens in the water, like mermaids. And, yeah. um, it's pretty interesting where you hear these way out in the middle of nowhere and you just hear these voices echoing all over the place. And so, you know, there's... You know, there's a little truth behind all these things, you know. So I, I do. I believe it. And the thing is, too, is like when you look at the pre-flood world and the Book of Enoch and just all these stories and these mythos, it's like uh, Lord of the Rings. I mean, you exactly. got giants, you got centaurs, you got sirens, you yeah. got witches, uh, just all this stuff, elves. And it's like. Well, God destroyed everything with the flood. So if there is yeah. anything pre-flood that survived, it has to be in the ocean. And it's like, what is it? The statistics is like 60% of the, the ocean has not even been explored or seen. Oh, yeah, easily. Yeah, easily. So, yeah. There's a lot, of, there's a lot down there. Um, that is going to, that can probably prove a lot. There's a lot, probably a lot of biblical evidence at the bottom of the ocean. No, oh, I agree. Uh, now getting into the, the, back to the 12 stones and uh, like, I can't remember if we mentioned this pre-roll or while we were recording, but the enemy can take God's creation and, and flip it and pervert it. And, you know, like Paul said, that, you know, they trade the truth for a lie and they worship the yeah. created things instead of the creator. You know, God yes. creates everything. The devil creates nothing. He only perverts and distorts things. So just like, you know, medicine, you know, God gave us certain plants that have medicinal purposes. And at the same time, Satan can pervert it to where we abuse it. And, I think these stones and stuff are no different when you look at uh, the, the new age movement and all these different things and talks about these stones. A lot of Christians nowadays will automatically go to, you know, well, that's demonic worship. That's divination. And, but when you look at these stones, they have properties that, that benefit mankind. The problem is, you know, venerating this, these created objects as, as God instead of giving the credit to the, the creator. But, but with that prefaced, I just, and this is a Google search, guys. I mean, I'm not some deep diving 
esoteric guy on stones. This, this was just like a quick little Google search because I was curious. Uh, I looked up uh, on some of these websites, the, the 12 stones and what they might mean or what they might, you know, properties they might have just, you know, curiosity's sake. But the, the website that I'd found um, said that Jasper is known as a supreme nurturer it possesses exceptional grounding abilities and keeps you level-headed even in the most difficult situations. Sapphire was said to be uh, the wisdom stone, stimulating concentration, enhancing creativity, promoting purity and depth of thought. Emerald, a sign of spring for its color, long been a symbol of romance, hope, good fortune, rebirth, and believed to aid in fertility. The onyx was uh, regeneration and new beginnings, thought to have protective properties. Carnelian uh, wards off insanity and depression. We need some of those <laughs> on by every street corner. <laughs> uh, chrysolite uh, soothes, calms, and inspires. Beryl. Uh, the first powerful stone recognized in ancient Mesopotamia uh, strengthened belief in the gods and had healing properties. Topaz was associated with compassion and communication, mellow, empathic stones. And then... Crystal Prince? Yes. <laughs> Crystal Prince? But it, yeah, uh, I've never heard of that. It, it represents good fortune and prosperity. Uh, Jacketh is a feminine energy, love and emotion and amethyst. I thought this was interesting. Uh, da Vinci once wrote that it dissipates evil thoughts. Really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know, and the thing about it, right. So, I mean, again, it's, it's, you know, we in, in the church, you know, we just don't explore these things, right. As to, but you know, God has some purpose for them. Right. So, would I be surprised if they have different properties? I and mean, even you think about the Garden of Eden, right? The Bible tells us that that specifically mentions bdellium, onyx, much gold. Like it's telling us that there are jewels there. Why does that matter? You know, in the creation of the Garden of Eden, what does it really matter? Well, it mattered to God enough to put it in scripture. And we know God designates certain stones, and we see even with the, you know, we talked about the eternal kingdom, you know, the new Jerusalem. That God's going to use specific jewels again to build the foundation. So are there properties to these stones that God sees that have supernatural potential or some type of effect on the atmosphere, the environment, on humanity? I think I, I think there's lots of validity to that. And it's, that's very interesting stuff. And if you think about it now, too, certainly in the New Age, they definitely believe it. I mean, the, the, the crystal business is it become a billion dollar industry in the last decade because people are using crystals for healing, for all these things, for meditation, for calming themselves. And they're really getting it from scripture. You know, and I, another example I'll give is that we see in scripture is the groves. And we talk about like the, the groves are constantly used for idol worship. Yeah, Asherah, scripture, right? right? Asherah, Bohemian grove, right? All these things, right? However, the first grove in scripture was built by Abraham. To honor Yahweh. That was the first mention of a grove in the Bible. But then it was adulterated 
to worship, like I said, the creation, to worship the fallen angels, to worship the demonic realm. So I think the same thing has happened with crystals today, that God, God originally identified and, and declared that these stones have properties and now it's been co-opted uh, by the enemy. But it all started with God and now it's being just imitated and misused uh, in things like the New Age and, of course, the occult and all that type of stuff. So. And many celebrities, I mean, it's like, I mean, it's become a celebrity thing. And, that, and that's the funny thing, too, is that as we get closer to the Great Tribulation, it's amazing for me just to see in my own career how when I started my career, you know, you know, working with the most serious of serious corporate people. I was working on Wall Street. And I love, you can't get more serious in terms of this is the heart of corporate America. You would, you would, you would have been, people would have thought you were a lunatic. If you came into work and said, that, yeah, hey, what's that necklace, that blue thing? Oh, yeah, this is my healing crystal. This is my energy crystal. Now, totally common, totally acceptable, yeah. totally apart. It doesn't matter what we And so, it, so it's, it's gained massive, massive popularity. And I think because there is a spiritual power behind it, it's just, are we following God's instructions? And that's the beauty of the Bible. When God is telling you to do something, it's always so specific. Right. Put them in this metal. Arrange them in this order. Put the names of the children of Israel on it. Only Aaron can wear it. Only or the high priest. Like God has a very set instruction for anything that's involving accessing Him. Anything that's divinely made. The ark, the temple, the tabernacle. It's all done to specificity. The minute we go away from that, that's when the problems come in. Right? It's just Adam and Eve eat from every tree except this one. And the minute you go, the minute you deviate from the mission. And the instruction, that's it. You know, that's when that's when the devil comes in. Yeah. And uh, I even had uh, somebody email me from uh, an episode we did on the, the Dig Bible podcast on this subject. And it was kind of like inadvertently brought up because my wife, uh, I'm a firm believer that there's just some people that are just more spiritually sensitive than others. Like me. You know, when I was in my full rebellion in my teenage years, I seeked supernatural experiences. You know, I mean, I, I, I played with Ouija boards. I, you know, had had a, a friend that was into witchcraft and uh, dabbled with, with that stuff and then tried to contact dead spirits with seances and, and all this stuff. Went into haunted houses. I mean, I wanted to see this stuff and I never had an experience. And... I think that's one due to my my good foundation in Christ I had growing up and then just good uh, prayer family. Like, you know, my grandmother, my mother constantly praying for me. I had that, you know, that protection of God on me, I believe. But also, I, I just don't think that I'm spiritually sensitive. But her, on the other hand, she's been all over the world doing mission work. She's been to India, Haiti, uh, South America. Oh, wow. And everywhere she goes, uh, she just has these experiences and attacks. She had a, a a shaman in Haiti, like put a hex on her. And she said uh, when she was in India, when they walked into the uh, the temple, that they had these little uh, girls that were like temple prostitutes and stuff. And she said everybody else in the group was like, oh, you know, looking around at all the artwork and the statues and stuff. She said, I just felt heavy and sick to my stomach she said it was just this demonic presence she said i had i couldn't even go in and 
look around and take pictures and enjoy it like everybody else. She said, because it was just so heavy on me. And she gets like that. She can be in the presence of something evil or dark and know that it's there before anybody else does. She can feel these things. And uh, I told a, a story about her one time and we were at a flea market and we were walking around and she's one of those that uh, when this uh, crystal stuff was kind of coming into the news and getting big, she heard about mm -hmm. the, uh, the salt crystals, how that it was good for your sinuses and things like that. So she, uh, we found this store that was just full of all these different crystals and salt lamps and stuff like that. And she was like, I've heard a lot of good things about those salt lamps. I, I'd like to check those out and it might help with the kids' sinuses and stuff. And so uh, we went and as soon as we stepped in, I mean, we were two steps in, she like gets wobbly and she just starts waving her hands. And I'm like, wow. what's the matter? And she said, there's a demonic presence. I don't know what it is. She said, but shoot. She said, I got to get out of here. And I mean, I literally had to like hold her arm stabilize her and get her out of there and then once i sit her down she got back to normal but i just happened to turn and look over my shoulder and there was all these racks with the crystals and stuff but in the back of the shop there was uh those crystals that you dangle and ask questions and they spin like the ouija boards and stuff. Yeah. it had the ouija yeah, boards yeah. and all that divination yeah. stuff yeah. in the back and she, she never saw that yeah, you know, she felt yeah. It. and I told yeah. that story, I mean, it's real. and I uh, had uh, one person email me, and then somebody else uh, messaged me on Facebook over it, and they were like, you say you're a Christian, what are you doing going to these places that, that are known to be demonic and using stones and witchcraft, and you know what I mean? It's just it's one of those things that's just people are... Uh, just dogmatic on things and they hear what their pastor tells them or someone they respect's opinion and they just run with it and they don't go to the word on it. Right. Exactly. And that's what it comes back to, right? It's going to the word. Yeah. And that's why, like, again, it's important to see these things can know that we're, you know, this is God wants us to, you know, we're, we're to take on the whole counsel of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction and righteousness, for correction, right? So we, we, we have to know, we have to, our goal, our mission should be to learn it all, mm -hmm. not just including things like this that aren't as commonly discussed, but it's a part of, but it's a part of scripture, you know, as you were saying that, and, and, and that is, to me, is just another level of discernment, mm -hmm. right? There's discernment where it's like, okay, I can read something and see it's not good. I can see a commercial or a TV show. I'm like, okay, this is from the enemy, but there's also you can feel a presence, right? I, I believe that, you know, um, Jesus did it all the time. Jesus felt things all the time spiritually. So, um, but a thing that came to mind too was, uh, cause I was talking about this recently and uh, covered it in, in actually my, my newest documentary, uh, End Time Nephilim Deception. Which I sent you a copy of, by the way. Oh, um, sweet. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so I talk about the, the TV show Lucifer, which is on Netflix, which, of course, is about the devil mm -hmm. trying to redeem himself, helping out humanity. Now he helps people and helps solve crime, essentially. And um, and how there's an episode because I, I, a part of my documentary, I talk about I talk about Lilith. 
and how this resurgence of the Lilith mythology in is it's ramped up. I mean, there are lots of books and TV shows where that she specifically mentioned, of course, the background for those who don't know is that the, the idea is, um, and this is definitely out of the new age, out of the occult is that Lilith was the first woman created. She was the original woman. She was Adam's first wife, but she refused to submit to him. And then she was cast out. But the interesting, there's several interesting things about that is that the, the story continues that and angels were sent to try and bring her back. And when she still refused, they fathered children with her. Oh, wow. So, they, so even though, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. some esoteric so, um, stuff right there. Yeah, exactly. Samael is the, is the angel you can read about in, in the cult text. So she, they identify her as a, as a, they call them incubi and succubi, but they're Nephilim, right? Mm-hmm. Or offspring or hybrids. So, so she's a character on the show Lucifer. And the interesting thing is she says um, at one point that she was in the garden and, you know, she said she wasn't going to listen. She wasn't going to, she didn't, not gonna, I don't have to listen to Adam. You know, she, of course, it's this big feminist statement. In the spirit of and today. She makes the statement that, exactly. Exactly. Which is, which is why she's so popular now, right? Is because that, that is the spirit of the age. But the interesting thing on the show is she says, when I was cast out, before I left, I took one thing with me, a jewel. And she goes on this whole thing about how she stole a jewel from the Garden of Eden. And with it, she can grant people immortality. Mm. The philosopher's so stone, that, maybe. Exactly. Exactly. Right. I mean, that's really what she's saying. Right. And so it's interesting. And, and, and on the show. It, we, it's it's revealed because she's she's not like a main character in the show. I guess she's on for a few episodes, but it's revealed that her daughter on the show, who is one of the main characters, basically is Lucifer's sidekick, is a nephew. She's a nephew. This is all revealed in her little arc. So yeah, a lot of this again, Days of Noah, Garden of Eden, Genesis, and a stone, and the Philosopher's Stone is basically what she has um, in her possession that she took from the Garden of Eden. So mm. again. The world is aware of these things. The church needs to be aware of these things. Yeah. And that's one thing I tell people, too, is like, because, like I said, I mean, they're good Christian people, you know, especially the ones that, you know, that listen to the other podcasts. But a lot of them, you know, they are 40, you know, anywhere from 30 to 50 year old Christian people. And their pastors have just been feeding them milk for 20, 30 years. And they're relying on them for everything they need to know. And don't get me wrong. I love the church. I I mean, the pastor that that pastored me for years, great guy. And he'll talk about, you know, the book of Enoch and and things like that, but in private to certain people. Mm -hmm. And he's even, he's even made the comment to me, you know, that a lot of these people are just learning and just coming to the faith and I don't want to confuse them. I want to get the foundation right. And he's, sure. and it, he's of the opinion that things like that is for, you know, not required for salvation. So that's to be discovered on your own. If you seek to, to do so, I mean, I, I understand that to a point, but it's just, 
now that I have been digging in deeper and finding all these things, it's done nothing but solidify my faith and grow it and, and bring me closer to the creator of the universe. And I just, I, I want other people there <laughs> and it's frustrating. And, that, and that's why you do this, right, brother? This is why you do the show. Because again, I mean, your pastor, his heart's in the right place, but that's not what the Bible says. It says that as a, if you're, we are to command it, to move from the milk to the meat. So as a pastor, you got to move your church along and start giving them some some good steak, not just milk every week. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, so it's important. It also shows that God has the answers to everything. Yes, the Bible has the answers to everything. When I was researching this stuff on stones and crystals and the New Age, you mentioned like herbs before, right? That God gives us herbs and they can be misused. And so you know, ayahuasca is a big part of this as well, mm -hmm. which of course is super hallucinogenic properties and people are going to peru and the amazon to go on these retreats paying thousands and thousands of dollars to go stay in a hut and sleep on the floor and have these you know lsd hallucinogenic experiences right mm -hmm. and so there was um a book that came across called the cosmic serpent and it's by a a, uh, a professor his name is uh, jeremy narby and how he went to the Amazon to go experience ayahuasca and live with these shamans for several weeks. And the crazy thing was that over and over again, they were saying how they use this plant, they smoke it, inhale it to access the spirit realm. It opens a port of the spirit realm. And a number of them have, you know, will make paintings of what they saw. And time and time again, it was serpents. And so, and him in his own experience saw a serpent. That's why he called the book The Cosmic Serpent, because he, he himself saw visions of serpents when he was under, when he was high, essentially, um, and basically opening portals. And so it was really, really interesting that, again, we see this, how all this stuff connects. That even in that, if you know the scripture, you know immediately, okay, where is this headed? Who is that? It was the, well, it's, it's Satan. So God has, the Bible has the answers. The, the more we dig and get deep into it, the more we see that it has the answers to literally everything that's going on in the world today. Yeah, and that's why you see the common themes too with the other cultures and, and the other uh, societies and things like that in the mythos. The serpent imagery is everywhere. you got it in South America, quasi-kettle, uh, and they yep. take their trips and have their spirit guides and they always see this wisdom serpent and uh, like a Sclepius, which a lot of people probably don't realize you, your modern symbol on the side of your EMS truck is a staff with a serpent yeah, twisting around it. That's a Sclepius staff. And back in ancient times, you would go to these temples for healing. And then what they would do is they'd give you a hallucinogenic drink and take you to the caverns beneath the temple and have you roam around until you were lost and then it gives that time for that hallucinogen to kick in and it was covered in snakes and the and the, the story went that if uh, a snake crawled over your body while you were laying there tripping that the, the serpent would heal you Egypt, you got all the depictions of the, the serpent coming out of the third eye, you know, the wisdom serpent exactly. illuminating the third exactly. eye. I mean, yeah, as Derek Gilbert says, I'm not a coincidence theorist. Or even Indian culture where they put the jewel 
right on their through eye right so it's like so again it's this whole idea of unlocking immortality unlocking the spirit realm through the third eye through the serpent so yeah yeah and man that's just cool and uh i want to throw this at you before we go and you you alluded to it earlier and i thought it was a really good uh segue because i was going to talk about it anyway but i guess it's just holy spirit man you brought it up too so i'm like yes i got something to go with that (laughs) but you're talking about the uh the 12 precious stones in the uh new jerusalem yes uh well see that's revelation chapter 21 and uh verse 19 through 20 uh i seen a video by this guy his name was david paulson i'd love to take credit for this revelation but it was not mine and i'll give credit where credit is due but uh he said uh that we call these precious stones you know because they're rare and we you know on earth we make jewelry out of them but uh things are going to be very different in the new jerusalem you know these stones will be plentiful and as you mentioned too like the garden of eden all these these stones and metals are referenced you know very freely it says this city is built of these 12 stones the same stones listed in the priestly ephod it said this here proves that there must be a god and his book is divine inspired he said, it's not until recently that we discovered how to make pure light. Most light, it's bouncing and crashing in waves and sporadically going everywhere. But now we know how to concentrate it and even make it pinpoint size and send it into one direction. You know, laser, laser lights are a prime example. But we also have what's called the cross-polarized light. You know, and this is achieved when you take various filters and, and flip the directions and stack them and it purifies the light. Well, it's not till, you know, this past century that scientists have discovered that by cutting these uh, precious stones into fine layers, you know, for like microscopic purposes, and when they shine cross-polarized light through them, they found that two things happen to every jewel when pure light is shown through them. So... They've broken these down basically into two classes, and there's isotropic and inisotropic. And some jewels, no matter their color to begin with, when pure light is shown through them, it lights up with all the colors of the rainbow and also in fantastic patterns. It says so, you know, other jewels in pure light lose all their color and they turn black. You know, this is just recently discovered, so... This was most definitely unknown to the biblical writers of this time. You know, like diamonds, for example, in pure light are nothing. They do nothing. They're worthless. They turn black like a lump of coal. Same thing for rubies and garnets. You know, there there are other stones that are in isotropic jewels and are the ones that light up. All the 12 stones used in the building of the New Jerusalem are all in isotropic. So when you wow. read those verses here, think of this with have that in the back of your mind when, when I read this and just think how beautiful the new Jerusalem is going to be. It says that uh, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. First was Jasper, the second Sapphire, third Agnet, and the fourth Emerald, the uh, fifth Onyx, sixth Carnelian, the seventh 
chrysolite and the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chersophise, and I probably butchered that, but uh, the eleventh is jacent and the twelfth is amethyst. So, in pure light, these stones are much more beautiful. You know, God doesn't touch the diamonds or the rubies. It's funny how all the things that we hold high value in this world, God sees as worthless. You know, his ways are not our our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. You know, who knew this 2,000 years ago? You know, and Jesus was called the light of the world. Moses and other men that was in the presence of God glowed afterwards so much so that Moses had to put on a veil because people couldn't look at him. This was just looking from the backside of God. They, yeah. He wasn't, you know, yeah. in the divine presence like we're going to be in the New Jerusalem. So light doesn't get much purer than that. Amen. So Amen. keep that in mind when you read those passages and think about the vivid, Ooh. bright colors and how beautiful this New Jerusalem yeah. is going to be. And it says, and I saw no temple in the city for the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun our moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb by the light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there amen hallelujah that's amazing yeah amazing that is <laughs> I watched that video, man. That is powerful. I never knew that. That is that's really powerful. And I love that right after it goes, it talks about the light. Like mm-hmm. right after it describes the jewels. That's a, it's just amazing that wow to think that how that's going to look. It already sounded amazing before I knew that, mm-hmm. but to understand it's just again the beauty, like it says, that how the Bible is true and supernatural because I mean, who would know that in the ancient world? It's yeah. impossible to know that. But wow, that is unbelievable, phenomenal. Yeah, if you get the chance or the, the people listening or watching, uh, go to YouTube and type in, you know, 12 precious stones of the New Jerusalem. And the guy's name is David Paulson. And he talks about it. And he has like a slideshow presentation. And he actually has the images of uh, what these stones look like when our version of pure light is shined through it. The patterns and the colors that it puts off are just like, wow. And so you can imagine being in the holy city and the, and the walls built of this stuff and in the presence of God, which is the true pure light. I mean, the, the, it's just going to be breathtaking. Check that out. Unbelievable. Yeah, that's great. I will be checking yeah. it out. <laughs> I'll be checking it out tonight. Yeah. That is awesome. Well, Ryan, uh, man, thank you so much. Uh, you're always just so generous with your time, and we always just have good conversations. I enjoy the fellowship. Uh, just let everybody know for that if they've been living under a rock, they don't know where to find your stuff, uh, <laughs> where they can find your amazing content. Yeah, sure. So my website is judgmentofthenephilim.com, one word. Uh, there you can find my books. I got documentaries. My newest documentary is not on there yet. There should be on there this weekend. Um, now that by God's grace, I'm helping get up and running. But yeah, my new my newest documentary where I talk about things like Lilith and the stone in the Garden of Eden and all that type of stuff, end time deception is going to be on there. 
on Vimeo Demand as well. My study guides are there, my social media for Facebook, for Instagram, and for my YouTube channel are all Judgment of the Nephilim, one word. And, uh, you know, yeah, check it out. Uh, there's lots of content on there. Also, feel free to reach out to me with questions. I love uh, taking questions. They never know I might bring back Thursday Night Theology soon to hit on a few questions I'm getting. Mm. So, And he's got a really spectacular shirt that says, ask me about the yes. Nephilim on the front <laughs> of it. And got the barcode yes. on the back to a video he made explaining what the Nephilim are. That's just awesome. But I ordered me yeah, one, so I'll, I'll be... It's on the way. It was some people. My wife sent it today. <laughs> yeah, it's on the way. I, I can tell you, I, I had a great time. I was on a Target. We, the day we got the shirts, um, I, and I was up in Norman, Oklahoma. I was on a Target, and I was there for with my mom for maybe two minutes. And a guy came right up to me and said, what's that about? What's, what is, what's, what is, what's the Nephilim about? <laughs> and so it was a great, it was, like, it was like mission accomplished. And so, and not only did I do that, I, I was able to speak to him. But he scanned the code and it takes you to a video that's a, a primer done by me, a very easy to understand explanation of Genesis 6. And so it's a great way to uh, get a conversation started and share God's word. So, yeah, that's awesome. And once again, Ryan, thank you so much. Great conversation, great fellowship. And I know there's uh, at least a handful of people out there that uh, got something out of it. And I hope somebody's paradigm was changed today. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, praise the Lord, man. This was great stuff. This is where we need to go. We need to keep pushing the envelope and going where the church won't go. So keep up the great work, man. I hope, and I know people are blessed by this. I, I've learned a lot tonight. Oh. So um, I know people were, were, were very, very blessed by this. So uh, I appreciate you having me on and just keep grinding for God, man. This is great stuff. Yeah. yeah. How glory to the King. Amen. Hallelujah. See you, brother. What's going on, guys? Thanks for listening to the Prometheus Lens podcast. I asked if you've got anything out of this show so far and you're already subscribed, please share us with a friend. Give us a rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That helps us to grow the show, get to new listeners, but it also helps us get better guests. Because a lot of times I send out emails to people and they check us out. And if we don't have a lot of good ratings and things like that, they won't even bother emailing me back. So anything you guys can do to help, I appreciate it. And if you're not a member of our members only group, I encourage you to do so. There's a lot of extra content on there. You get early access to episodes, uh, private chats, members-only videos, and episodes. It's a great community. Join the band of brothers on this hero's journey.